Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 8, Blood and Boyars, Part 2. Now we left off last time with a failed attempt at peace, leading to Khan Sabin's desperate attempt to flee into the arms of the Byzantines. But to recap, this wasn't just about war and peace. This was about the future of the Bulgarian state, its cultural future, its political future. The boyars rejected Sabin for many reasons. Because his attempt at peace violated their masculine sense of themselves, even if it made sense for Bulgaria to seek peace following a victory, was simply an intolerable affront. Also, because they made it very clear that they believed that the Byzantine domination which would result from this peace was akin to slavery, and they would not be enslaved. Finally, it seemed that the boyars were very defensive when it came to the cultural influence of Byzantium in Christianity. They saw both as threats to their paganism, threats to their unique culture. Now, if you're interested, I can recommend checking out the American TV show Vikings for the way it portrays the cultural collision of hyper-masculine form of paganism with Christianity. It takes place right around the same time that we're discussing right now, and while it's of course different in many respects, I think that the meaning of cultures it shows can give you some idea of what the boyars likely thought of the Byzantines and their quote-unquote feminine, weak Christianity. So Sabin is gone. When he fled, he left a man named Umor to rule in his place. Umor was likely related to Vinech and Kormisosh. But this legitimacy he had, likely from those relations, wasn't enough to keep him in power long. The problem is that, considering he was most probably chosen by Sabin, it's believed that he was also pro-peace with Byzantium. So, probably as a result of that stance, he is Khan for about 40 days. At the end of his reign, he probably follows Sabin and flees to the Byzantine Empire. So, that's one more Khan coming and going. So, it's not until 766 that Umar's successor, Toktu, takes the reins. However, as the title of this episode hints, this is far from the end of Bulgaria's political chaos. Toktu is not pro-peace with Byzantium. Toktu has the support of the most powerful faction of the boyars. But what Toktu does not have is luck. For shortly after he becomes Khan, there's a rebellion which frightens him so much that he decides to flee the country. Except he flees towards the Danube, and eventually is caught there and killed. He was Khan for just over a year. In fact, most histories and chroniclers skip over Umor and Toktu entirely, as they represent such a short period of time. And unfortunately, their successor is also somewhat forgettable. Pagan, ironically spelled like pagan in English, takes over in 767 after Toktu is killed. Now, somehow we have returned to a pro-peace with Byzantium leader, 
or at least a leader who realizes that continuing the war with Byzantium is completely insane at this point. Now, accounts of what happens over uh, the next year or so differ somewhat. It's either that Pagan sent peace envoys to Constantine V, which were turned away, at which point Pagan went himself, or the first set of envoys was never sent and Pagan appealed directly to Constantine to begin with. Okay, so slight differences in this uh, chronology, but either way. Pagan, with most of Bulgaria's leading boyars at his side, eventually stood facing the Byzantine emperor, Constantine V, with the deposed Khan Sabin at his side. The situation must have been incredibly tense. The Byzantine chroniclers describe Pagan as begging for peace and the forgiveness of Constantine V. However, this may have been a bit of embellishment on their part. Considering how many Khans had so recently died at the hands of boyars who thought they weren't up to the job or sort of being strong enough, even if the boyars were accompanying Pag- even if the, the boyars accompanying Pagan were also there to sue for peace, I, I can't imagine him you know, kind of showing such a sign of weakness and really begging. Just doing that in front of his nobles probably wouldn't be such a good idea. Uh, because there were still boyars back in Pliska who would probably like to see any Khan who did such a thing dead. But that's just my speculation. Maybe it happened. In any case, Constantine V was not in a forgiving mood. He chastised the Bulgarians for their anarchical ways, for deposing their legitimate ruler, who was incidentally standing next to him, and for not recognizing that their Khan was his vassal, that they should pay homage to him and they should be ruled by him. The nerve, right? But somehow, in spite of this barrage of verbal abuse, which I'm sure was difficult for a man as proud as Pagan to tolerate, peace was made, and Pagan was allowed to return home. Or at least that's how things appeared. In reality, another invasion was prepared by Constantine, one which drove into the heart of the Bulgarian state like a spear. Now this time, There was no preparation from the Bulgarians. This time there was no army. The countryside was ravaged and Pagan fled towards the Black Sea. He was killed by his own slaves somewhere along the way. He had been Khan for around one year. Yet, in the power vacuum, Constantine V decided that he had done enough, and he returned to Constantinople. But as different boyars vied for control and power without success... It was clearly too tempting for Constantine not to return. Now, at this moment, I think it's kind of amazing that Constantine, I don't know, resists the temptation to deliver the coup de grace, the killing blow. As we're going to see as these wars with Byzantium go on and on and on, the Byzantines just never seem to be able to finish off Bulgaria for one reason or another. Now, maybe it was that there was some trouble back home and Constantine V had to return. Maybe there was trouble in the east. But for whatever reason, And this time and many times, the Byzantines just turn around and go home right when they have enough advantage to go for the kill. But while the time that passed was not enough for Bulgaria's political situation to stabilize, it was enough for some resistance to the Byzantines to be organized. So Constantine's next campaign brought him only about to the river Tunja, near the border, before trouble again forced him to return to Constantinople. As he had shown time and again, he was now determined to use this opportunity he had to finish off Bulgaria. 
peace in the East would not last forever, and he knew this only too well. At the moment the Arabs or anyone off in the East began to make trouble again, he would not be able to devote his full resources to destroying Bulgaria. So time was pressing. And so, in 767, Constantine V set out again with a massive force. He was seeking to repeat his former successes by coupling this with sending a force of 2,600 ships loaded with troops to Mesumbria, which is now Nesebar on the Black Sea coast. But while this kind of pincer move had worked so well in the past, the sea itself is inherently unpredictable. His ships were caught in a strong northern wind and were smashed on the rocks. His army made it to the pass of Verengava in the Balkan Mountains before hearing the news and deciding to sue for peace. Now somewhere around this time, most likely 768, but we can't be sure, another Khan finally rises above the discord of the boyars to lead again. Telerig's early years in power were peaceful, so as usual we know essentially nothing about them, but unsurprisingly the peace didn't last long. Constantine was no doubt frustrated that he had thus far failed to destroy the Bulgarian state in spite of its political chaos. So when he saw Telerig beginning to establish himself, to solidify his power, this worried him immensely. As we've seen in the past, and we'll see many times again as the story develops, the Bulgarian army, united in an able hands, was a nearly unbeatable force. That was a chance that Constantine felt he couldn't take. So in 744, Constantine V returns again and tries his you know, classic tactic of splitting his forces, sending one by ship up to the mouth of the Danube to attack from the north, while the other moves directly through Thrace to attack from the south. However, when the force led by Constantine made it to Varna on the Black Sea coast, a peace was established and Constantine retreated. Weird, right? Now, some sources claim the Bulgarians begged Constantine for this peace, while others claim that trouble in Constantinople forced the emperor to pull back. I'm a bit skeptical that peace would have been initiated by the Bulgarians, considering not a single battle had been fought, and especially considering what was about to happen. In any case, though, this war was abruptly cancelled. Time for everyone to go home. Now wait a minute. You didn't think we were about to have a short little war with no battles, did you? No, of course not. Don't be ridiculous. A few months later, with negotiations for peace ongoing... Byzantine spies informed the emperor that Telerig was preparing a force of 12,000 soldiers to march against a Slavic tribe called the Berzetians, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, probably not, who lived in a region of Thessaly, which is around the middle of the modern Greek state on the Aegean side. There's a map of the region today on the website. Now, after so many years of war, the Bulgarian population was severely depleted, and this raid was intended to force this tribe to migrate into the borders of the Bulgarian state. And because this tribe was closely related to the many of the Slavs that already lived in Bulgaria, it was thought they wouldn't object too strongly to moving back in with their kinfolk. Constantine V was not okay with this. As I mentioned, he was extremely concerned about the Bulgarians getting back on their feet, and this move would have gone a long way towards that goal. So Constantine settled on a bit of trickery. The force moving south was not a full Bulgarian army ready for a proper war. It was a force designed to pressure a tribe to move, 
the Bulgarian ambassador was told that Constantine was mustering a force to move against the Arabs in the east. In other words, he was told that the Byzantines would be distracted in the east for the foreseeable future. But instead of moving east, Constantine took a force of 80,000 men and force-marched them towards the Bulgarian force. Now, despite how exhausted these 80,000 men must have been after marching roughly 400 kilometers, they fell upon the much smaller Bulgarian force, utterly without warning, somewhere around where the modern borders of Greece, Macedonia, and Albania meet. The result was a complete rout, with the Bulgarians fleeing and taking heavy casualties. The Battle of Barzitia was cause enough for Constantine to celebrate a triumph in Constantinople and to name the campaign the Noble War. It brought about a peace treaty in which both sides promised not to invade each other's territory, and so a lasting peace was finally at hand. Just kidding, no, not really. Now, if you believe that, I'm afraid you really need to start paying closer attention to this story. Within a year, another fleet of Byzantine ships, with another army in it, was sailing towards the Black Sea coast. But once again, bad weather destroyed them, and many ships were lost, and the whole thing was actually called off again. Now, around this time, Telerig was also catching on to the fact that his disastrous defeat at Berzitia meant that he undoubtedly had Byzantine spies in his midst. Now, in response, he devised his own little bit of trickery. Telerig told Constantine V that things were going badly at home and that he wanted to flee to Constantinople just as several of his predecessors had done. Now, this would have been entirely plausible to Constantine considering you know, Sabian had done this and Umar had possibly done this. So, and Telerig had just suffered a crippling defeat at Berzitia. So, everything seems normal. So when Telerig asked Constantine for a list of people he could trust in Pliska in the Bulgarian capital... Constantine replied by essentially sharing the name of all of his spies, who were all executed. Now, some sources cast doubt on the idea that a man who is normally as intelligent as Constantine V might have fallen for a trick like this. But in any case, Telerig found the spies, and he killed all of them. Now, Constantine V, along with the imperial equivalent of the CIA or FSB, were furious. So when the emperor prepared another invasion force, he really wanted to get rid of the Bulgarians. He was fed up with this. But as his preparations were underway, he contracted a fever and died. Thus, Constantine V, who was at this time the greatest foe Bulgaria had ever faced, was lost. I will leave his eulogy to Theophanes the Confessor. Quote, he had reigned as sole emperor after his father's death 34 years, 2 months, and 26 days. Thus, he ended his life, polluted as he was with much Christian blood, with the invocation of demons to whom he sacrificed, with the persecution of the holy churches and of the true and immaculate faith. Furthermore, with the slaying of monks and the profanation of monasteries. In all manner of evil, he had reached a pinnacle no less than Diocletian and the ancient tyrants. In the same month, Abdelas, the ruler of the Arabs, also died. Thus, the two wild beasts, who had for a long time simultaneously devoured the human race, died by God's providence. 
and heir respective sons Leo and Mahdi acceded to power. End quote. Geez, Theophanes, tell us what you really think. But seriously, you may have forgotten the earlier discussion we have had over the fight over icons within the Byzantine world, but that eulogy should give you an idea of just how that religious conflict colored the opinions of later writings. Despite how intelligent and able a ruler Constantine V was, I mean, he defeated the Arabs, he defeated the Bulgarians quite a lot, he still gets hardly a kind word from the chroniclers simply because of his position on icons. I mean, seriously, Theophanes is talking about him, you know, living with, sacrificing to demons and slaying churchmen and being covered in Christian blood and compares him to an Islamic ruler. Ouch. So his death ended the lowest period for the first Bulgarian empire, the lowest and most down period they had yet faced. The state had for years at this point seemed just moments from death, but persistence had allowed them to outlive their foe. For long years of war and disaster also had other effects. Now you'll remember how the Bulgarian state had been divided between, well, was divided between proto-Bulgarian aristocracy and a mainly Slavic population. Well, that division has been steadily and slowly evolving. Uh, we've now seen Khans with Slavic parents. His death ended the lowest period the first Bulgarian Empire had yet faced. The state had for years seemed just moments from death. However, persistence had allowed them to outlive their foe. But the long years of war and disaster had also had other effects as well. Now, you'll remember how the Bulgarian state had been divided between a proto-Bulgarian aristocracy and a mainly Slavic population. Well, that division has been steadily evolving. We've now seen Khans with Slavic parents. And in response to its defeats, the Bulgarian state has been encouraging Slavic immigration. So we're seeing the domination by the proto-Bulgarians slowly eroded away by this desperate attempt to keep the state afloat. In short... If times were good, then the proto-Bulgarian boyars would have used their power to continue to dominate the Slavs. However, bad times meant that concessions had to be made. The result was that the mixing of these populations and the development of a Slavic aristocracy were both accelerated by the hardships of the mid-8th century. Thus, these hardships in the long run led to important steps towards the greater unification of Bulgaria and ultimately its renewed strength. But this does not mean that time, good times were currently at hand. Telerig seems to have encountered some sort of trouble leading him to actually flee to the Byzantine court for real in 777. There, he married a cousin of the new empress and converted to Christianity. But this would not be cause for another war. The new domineering Byzantine Empress Irene it was far too busy dealing with the continuing struggle over icons to be bothered with the Bulgarians. And so, another period of relative calm settled in. Now, things were indeed quiet in Bulgaria at this time. Telerig had been succeeded by Kardam, and it's possible that another unknown Khan had ruled some period in between. But, regardless of all this, the peaceful period ended in 789 when a small Byzantine force carelessly marching around the Strumo River in what Bulgarians believed to be their territory was ambushed and destroyed. While there were no immediate consequences, 
it again made Bulgaria a prime target for the Byzantines. So by the time 791 rolled around, Irene's son Constantine VI was in firm control of the Byzantine Empire, just as Kardam was now in firm control of Bulgaria. Constantine the Younger was a young, brash, and eager man. He wanted to outshine his mother, who had so dominated the Byzantine Empire for many years prior. However, this campaign he led against Bulgaria went nowhere fast. The armies of Bulgaria and Byzantine met, engaged in a light skirmish, and both ran away. Now, how and why both armies seem to have fled in fear at the same time, I have honestly no idea. The whole thing makes no sense to me. How does one army kind of freak out and get scared of the situation and beat it? The other army also gets scared and freaks out and runs away. I don't know. But in any case, the next year, 792, the Byzantines set out again. The two-pronged attacks of Constantine V had now given way to a simple head-on assault by Constantine VI. His army moved towards the border fortress of Marsali. Yes, the same Marsali where the Byzantines and Bulgarians fought a battle 36 years earlier. But the Bulgarians were prepared, and as usual, they knew how to use the rough terrain that marks the road to Pliska to their advantage. So they blockaded the road to the capital and waited behind their fortifications. For a few days, things were quiet as Constantine VI weighed his options. Finally, a promise of victory from a personal astrologist convinced Constantine that it was time to attack. Now, that's reason 4,578 not to trust astrologists for those of you keeping score at home. Really, just don't do it. So, in fact, Constantine was so confident, based on this prediction, that he he didn't really even prepare adequately for the attack. Now, Kardam, on the other hand, he was making excellent preparations. He had hidden his cavalry behind some low hills to the west of the Byzantine force. You can see an excellent map of the battle on the website. So, the Byzantines advanced recklessly, allowing their battle lines to become disorganized as they moved over the rough, hilly terrain. Kardam used this moment of confusion as the moment to counterattack. He allowed his infantry to make a headlong assault while his cavalry swung around and cut off the Byzantine retreat. The result was a near total victory for the Bulgarians. Not only was the army smashed with many Byzantine high-level commanders killed, but the entire baggage train, along with the emperor's personal tent, were all captured. Four years later, in 796, Cardan decided that the way things had progressed meant that it was time the Byzantines started sending him tribute again. Otherwise, he threatened, he would raid Thrace all the way to the Golden Gate of Constantinople. Constantine VI sent him horseshit, along with a note which said, Such tribute as befits you, I have sent you. You are an old man, and I do not want you to take the trouble of coming all the way here. Instead, I will go to Markelai, and do you come out? Then let God decide. End quote. So Constantine VI sent an army and invited the Bulgarians to do battle. They declined, and after everyone sat around for nearly three weeks, they all went home, returning to the peace established in 792. Seems like Constantine VI was a lot of bark and no bite. Now, a year later, he was blinded by his own mother, and he died shortly afterwards. Oops. And you thought you had mother issues. But in spite of the indecisive nature of the battles during the reign of Constantine VI, Bulgaria was recovering. 
It was repopulating and it was rearming. Kardam had finally brought a period of comparative stability and able rule after so many years of chaos. The period of blood and boyars was now over. Kardam died quietly in 803, peacefully, passing the title of Khan to a man who would take Bulgaria's recovery to its full potential. Bulgaria under Krum would not simply resist the advances of Byzantium, but would explode in nearly all directions in a flurry of conquest. In just a few short years, Krum would see Bulgaria transformed in the eyes of the Byzantines from a corpse on the brink of death to a mortal enemy. Because by the time he was done, Krum would sip his wine from the skulls of his enemies. And his enemies would not forget. A few quick notes before we finish. First, I should mention that the Empress Irene, who is mentioned briefly here, is a fascinating character worth checking out. There's a lot of information about her, so I encourage you to take a look if you're interested. One interesting bit of information is that because she reigned alone and supreme as a woman in Byzantium, the Pope in Rome saw this as illegitimate and a sign that the Roman throne was essentially empty. Thus, in response, he crowned Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor establishing a state which would help define the history of Europe for hundreds of years to come. Now, while that empire won't be a central figure in Bulgarian history, it does occasionally play a role, and so I think it's important to mark its beginning. Important and just interesting. Now, lastly, I know this podcast has fallen into a lot of military history and a lot of sort of repetitive this happened, then this happened, then this happened over the last few episodes. Now, this is owing mostly to the fact that there's not a lot of information about sort of the cultural aspects and religious aspects of the early Bulgarian state, and that for a lot of these things, they're just very limited sources. So uh, there's not a lot of embellishment or storytelling. I just have to kind of get through these things. But soon, as the story progresses, especially in the next few episodes, we're going to have a lot better sources, a lot more content. And so the story is going to get I think told a little bit better. It's going to get a little more complex and with some non-military aspects. So don't think we're just a bunch of military history buffs that are going to tell the whole history of Bulgaria from just one angle. It's definitely going to be more and more complex and interesting as we go. All right. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook or even better, writing a review on iTunes. Also, check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that will come along with each episode. Now, for this episode, as I've mentioned, we have several useful maps that you're definitely going to want to check out. Now, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It makes a big difference for us and really does get us extra excited about the podcast. Uh, now, I'd like to take, thank the two listeners who have donated recently, Thank you guys a lot. I don't have your names, but uh, it really matters a lot. And we're hoping to soon start reinvesting some of those donations in advertising. It's been a little bit difficult because right now the two main members of the team are on different continents and have a lot going on. But that's where we're going to be putting that money soon. We want to advertise online and advertise with uh, flyers and things like that to try to boost our audience. So thanks so much for your donations, and we can't wait to put them to good use. So until next time, uspech, or in English, Good luck.